0: This is the Creators for Climate podcast, an initiative born in Amsterdam with a view out onto the world.
1: We're a mix of creatives, activists and business folk, all impatient with the slow pace of change to tackle our climate emergency.
2: As storytellers and myth builders, we have the power, influence and responsibility to drive change. Hello and welcome to the Creators for Climate podcast series. My name is Alex Herringer and it's my pleasure to be your host. Like many of you listening, I work in the creative industry. Sometimes it feels like a dream knowing that I can live off what I love to do. I'm a filmmaker by trade and freelance as a producer and director here in Amsterdam. I've always loved film because it allows me to take a trip through time and space. Through film, I understand how we as people relate to the environments we find ourselves in. But in August 2019, something snapped. I felt something break inside me which I'd never felt before and it was triggered by the images of the Amazon rainforest burning to the ground. And I realized there soon may not be an environment left which we can relate to. I needed to do something. And so I asked myself the question, how can I use my craft? How can I use my skill set? How can I use my creativity to help tackle this crisis? And as soon as I asked, the universe provided and I became a part of Creatives for Climate, an Amsterdam-born initiative organized by and for people who too are trying to answer this question. My first contact was established during the first Creators for Climate Summit, held last September at the Patagonia headquarters. More than 200 creatives came together to listen to what Extinction Rebellion and Patagonia had to say about the crisis. For many and myself, it was the first time I emotionally connected to what the science has been telling us for years, and it wasn't a pretty sight. It's clear that we cannot sit by any longer, and must take a collective stance on the climate and ecological crisis. If we want to survive as a species, and I think we do, We really need to reshape our society and change business as usual for good. But for that to happen, we need a new mythology that will wake up and unite the people, whilst also showing the way forward. Luckily, we as creatives are storytellers and therefore myth builders. And you don't have to look that far to see how powerful our stories are. So we recorded the summit at Patagonia. The speakers did an amazing job at connecting to the audience through their story. And the panel conversations afterward really got the audience involved. They got them buzzing and ready to contribute. After the event we posted an open brief through our online platform asking for creative executions for the upcoming Fridays for Future protest and we received more than 150 creative executions within a week. Just to give you an impression of what it was like that night and also to give you a taste of what our future events will look like, I'll play a few of the speeches that were heard that night. Let's go back in time and listen to the founder of Creatives for Climate, Lucy von Sturmer, who opened the evening. To this day, I'm amazed at Lucy's ability of bringing people together and setting things in motion. And Without her, this initiative would never have materialised.
1: Thank you all for coming tonight. I'm Lucy von Sturmer, founder of The Humble Brag, and when my business partner Jessica Hartley and I, that's Jess, by the way, everybody, when we decided to put on this event, we accounted for 40 or 50 people, but we received more than 400 RSVPs, So we had to move to the biggest location we could find and disappoint quite a few people. But it also meant that there are so many people just like us that are terrified of what's happening right now with the climate and want to know what they can do both in their personal and professional lives to make a difference. What was even more amazing than how many people wanted to attend tonight was how many people wanted to actively contribute with their ideas and solutions too. The topic that we're here to talk about tonight is really big. And it's really scary and it's really sad and it's really depressing and there are just no two ways about it and it's so big and so scary that often we don't want to think about it but what we're here to discuss tonight is what creativity could and should do in response to this crisis on a personal note when i started to engage with the climate science which was a hard thing to really confront head on i got really depressed and uh, i think i was called a downer once or twice I found it really difficult to respond to seemingly simple questions like do I want to stay in the Netherlands or do I want to move home to New Zealand, where I'm from? And so Extinction Rebellion, the climate activist group that are going to be talking to us tonight, launched a direct letter at our industry as, to us as creatives to use our creativity, our platform and our influence to help to raise awareness of this crisis. And the letter was quite pointed in its language and I encourage you, if you haven't already, just to Google it when you get home. But one of the things that it said was you can do anything you want and you can shift m- mass behavior in a heartbeat but no making a small campaign to give up drinking from plastic straws is not going to cut it and then in june jessica and i were in khan at the festival of creativity and we witnessed extinction rebellion protesters getting arrested and the next day we were swimming by the pool as you do And um, we received a text message alert that there was going to be an impromptu panel with the Extinction Rebellion activists. And so we ran down to hear what they had to say. And a lot of people ran down to hear what they had to say. And so my background is working in NGOs and sustainability. And so I kind of lost faith in traditional systems to be able to solve these problems a little while ago. And so for me, the jump to despair wasn't such a big one. But I was sitting next to Jessica, who for two decades has worked in the creative industries, and I know that this talk was a real trigger point for her. And so we looked at each other afterwards and said, we have to take this conversation further. And because we work on an international level, we've kept our eye on what's happening in other places. And right now in the UK, a lot of people have lost faith in traditional institutions to be able to respond to the most pressing issues of our time. And so, what this means is that the creative industries has been very organized in its response. And so, in July, uh, the creative climate disclosure was launched by change agency, Futera. And over a hundred agencies have signed on. And uh, what they've done by signing on is that they've committed to disclosing their income based on industry, including fossil fuel briefs and high carbon clients. And then just two weeks ago, Create and Strike was launched. And more than 80 agencies have signed up, and I think Nomads is one of them also from from the Netherlands, which is cool. And what they've committed to doing is giving their staff time off to strike, but also they've committed their creativity to amplifying awareness of this cause. And what they're doing is that they're putting their weight behind the voices of all the hundreds of thousands of young people that are already striking, that don't see a point in preparing for their future or educating because there's enough science out there and action isn't being taken. And so one of the key things that we want us all to take home tonight is that as creatives, we're really powerful. So as storytellers, as writers, as videographers, as designers, as CEOs, as MDs, as shareholders, (laughs) as interns, we have the ability to inspire people and to change behavior. So tonight is also about opening the space, a safe space, where we can ask really difficult questions. Because maybe if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, we need to change the system itself.
2: Our next speaker was Linda Moorland, who shared the Extinction Rebellion presentation, explaining the science behind the crisis we face. Linda is the national representative of Extinction Rebellion. And after her speech, I joined her a few times on the front lines of nonviolent direct actions, big and small alike. She has definitely inspired my activism, to say the least.
0: Hello, everybody. My name is Linda. I'm with Extinction Rebellion. And before I get into the science of the talk, and as Lucy mentioned, the depressing reality of where we are with our planet, I'll tell you something about myself. So maybe I'll start with telling you who I'm not. I'm not a climate scientist, nor am I a seasoned uh, protester or a seasoned environmentalist. I'm actually an economist, and I've lived in Amsterdam for the last 10 years. I'm Dutch. Uh, I'm 33 years old and I've worked in corporate finance for the most of 13 years, so I'm definitely not a climate saint. But something changed for me when I heard the scientific facts behind the climate crisis for the first time. And they were presented to me six months ago by a climate scientist headed up by Extinction Rebellion. And I remember feeling the sheer shock and magnitude and urgency of the issue we face. And it had never been presented to me in that way holistically before. And I remember feeling a lot of grief. And for me, the reason I joined XR is because it gave me a way to channel my grief and my anger towards something productive. And it also made me realize that the only way I can be powerful as an individual is to organize myself and demand system change. See, XR advocates system change. Of course, we all have an individual responsibility. We can go vegan, we can fly less, we can use our cars less, but the urgency we face The moment in time where we're at right now, it really is 5 to 12. So unless we advocate and manifest system change, we'll be too late. Somehow, intellectually, we're all very aware of what's been happening. We know about the Amazon wildfires, we know about the fires in Indonesia and Africa, we know our governments aren't doing anything to limit CO2 emissions, but we're stuck in this vacuum of cognitive dissonance where we know what the reality is, yet we're not acting, we're not demanding change. And in order for us To demand change, we need to confront the whole truth. At the risk of stating the obvious, the Earth is our only life support system. Its land, its marine life, its oceans, its biosphere provides everything that we need as a species to thrive. And sadly, we're in the process of destroying that life support system and we're destroying it in multiple ways. One, we're destroying its climate. We've been pumping so much CO2 into the air that we're actually getting into new territory. We're heating up the Earth at an unprecedented rate. And two, we're destroying its ecology we're losing biodiversity at an alarming rate. We're actually in the sixth mass extinction of our planet. So in short, we're destroying our future. We're looking very possibly at the end of humans as a species, and very probably at the end of human civilization. So let's start with the climate. I guess everyone by now is familiar with greenhouse gases. The most relevant to us in this presentation are CO2 and methane. And greenhouse gases serve a purpose. Greenhouse gases ensure that heat that radiates from the sun is uh, trapped in the atmosphere and creates a climate in which we can thrive as a species, in which we can manifest agriculture, build cities, basically the climate based on which our current civilization is based. And as you're already aware, we've been pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at an unprecedented rate since the Industrial Revolution, causing our climate to change. So how long have we known about all this? How long have our governments known about this? Since the 80s, climate scientists have become very worried about the effects of the Industrial Revolution and greenhouse gases on our climate. And in the 90s, the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, was founded. And this body is an intergovernmental body made up of thousands of scientists that review scientific papers on climate change. And they have all sorts of subgroups that research different specific social aspects and economic aspects of global warming. Every now and then, they also issue reports. The last report they issued was at the end of 2018. And that report had two very alarming, dramatic conclusions. One, we're on track for very high levels of temperature rise. And two, humanity only has a very limited window to act until those changes become irreversible meaning nothing that we do as a species, no matter how effective our climate policy, we will get into a scenario of runaway climate change, in which basically it no longer matters what we do. So what are the current trajectories that we're on? We have virtually no chance of remaining below the Paris target of 1.5 degree warming. We have only a 5% chance it will be less than 2 degrees by 2100, and our likely range is 2 to 4.9 degrees Celsius with a median of 3.2 degrees. To put that into context, because maybe it doesn't sound so high, the last time we experienced temperatures higher than 2 degrees Celsius compared to average pre-industrial age uh, temperatures was 130,000 years ago, before human civilization. And the last time we had temperatures above that, so the likely range by the end of the century, between 2 and 4.9 degrees, was millions of years ago. So this was before humans even existed. So scientists honestly don't know if we as a species can thrive in an earth that hot. It's simply not known. Which is basically a whole new realm of effects of climate change, which was dumbfounding to me. So the effects are already here. What happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we keep trusting our governments? If we don't take any action? What happens if we don't organize ourselves? Then it's pretty easy for scientists, both climate scientists as well as social scientists, to predict what's gonna happen. First and foremost, obviously, we'll experience accelerating rise in sea levels. And to put this into the context of the Netherlands, I know that in some discussions you may have around climate change, people are convinced that we're very good with water, because historically we have been. However, take this into consideration. The Delta Works were built in 1986, and they were supposed to protect us for 200 years. However, they've only been built to protect us from 50 centimeters of sea level rise, and we're on trajectory for one and a half to two meters by the end of the century. And our government does not have a plan B at this point. So we'll experience more extreme weather events, such as droughts, wildfires, hurricanes, and they'll happen more frequent, and they'll happen at a much more amplified rate. So very likely, they'll influence the economy, but they'll also influence mass migration. We'll also experience more deaths due to heat stress. The human body can't handle certain temperatures above a certain threshold, and neither can it handle humidity over a certain threshold. This has nothing to do with your age or your physical state. If you're left outside for more than six hours, you simply die. What else? Agriculture. It'll be very difficult to grow crops, especially in continental areas, if we have more than one, two, or three degrees warming. So we'll have food supply shortages. Our food supply system is extremely interconnected, so this will definitely affect our economy. It will affect food prices, and when food prices are affected, political instability undoubtedly emerges. So basically what we're looking at is mass civil unrest. So what have we done so far? We know that the IPCC was founded in 1990. Scientists have have been giving us warnings since then. Reports have been issued. However, unfortunately, CO2 emissions have been 60% higher currently than in 1990. The last two years, world emissions have risen by roughly 3%. Even the Netherlands, despite us having the greenest cabinet in the history, we've increased CO2 emissions with 0.7% last year. And not only that, our government continues to invest through tax subsidies and other types of grants in big oil. Fossil fuel industries receive 7.6 billion euro in grants each year. That's huge. It's massive.
2: Next up, we had Alex Weller, the marketing director at Patagonia speak. Alex shared the insightful and inspiring journey of Patagonia. We learned how Patagonia repositioned itself when it came to understand its responsibility to avert this crisis.
3: Hi, welcome to Patagonia. I think it falls on me to welcome you guys. I have never seen this room so full and that's great, that's amazing and we're seeing a lot of new faces uh, and some familiar ones So thank you. Thanks very much for coming and for those of you that don't know what Patagonia is We're an outdoor clothing company. We make clothing for doing stuff like this. Uh, We were founded in 1973 in Ventura, California Which is a tiny little surf town about an hour's drive north of LA by these guys and most specifically this guy in the middle, a guy called Yvonne Chinard that Mark referenced at the top end of his presentation. And they were probably <coughs> the original kind of California, counterculture, dirtbag rebels. And we've been talking a lot as a company, certainly in the last couple of years, about how we retain this revolutionary zeal and this rebellious attitude in a time when it is required most. And one of the things that manifested through that recently is the change of our mission statement. And actually, we've had to say mission statement for around 30 years and we really liked it. And we were really good at it. We lived in it, we lived up to it, most importantly. And it was a really powerful set of words. And then in December of last year, Yvonne, who is now in his 80s, said that we're changing it to this. We liked the mission statement that went before. And we didn't like this when we first saw it, because we knew that it would pull a lot of heat on us. Who can stand up as a business to this set of words? We're in business to save our home planet. You're greenwashing. How can you say that? You're building products. You're adding carbon to the atmosphere. You're calling inspection upon you. But as Yvonne rightly reminded us, living an examined life is a pain in the ass. And we all know what that pain in the ass feels like as individuals, and perhaps as owners of companies, when you step into your environmental journey, your activist journey, and the first thing that your peers and your colleagues and your family do is call you out. They call you out for flying planes. They call you out for eating meat. You are calling upon yourself examined, right? But this is an important part of the business process. This is an important part that people have to understand. If you're going to take a stand with your business and get in this movement, you're not going to be 100% perfect straight out the gate, right? You're going to have to look into your supply chain, <coughs> like Yvonne Chouinard did in the late 1970s when we started making clothes out of cotton, and see that it's not great, that the people that you bank with aren't great, that the energy supplier for your business probably isn't great. That there are a lot of things about what you do and how you do it that you might not even know. But the important thing is that you see your impact, because seeing your impact enables you to address your impact. And Yvonne knew when he saw the highest rates of cancer in California were happening in the valleys where chemical cotton was being produced, and that those chemicals were making their way all the way through to his end customer, that, that had to change but that change is costly changing over an entire supply chain to organic cotton when there wasn't even enough organic cotton in the world to supply what was then very meager needs of our company was costly that meant investing in farmers it meant building our own farms and reimagining the supply chain at a time when that supply chain just didn't exist right and so There is a point here that emerges for us as a company and a point that carries through all the way until now and I'm quite sure into the future, right? That a principle is not a principle until it costs you something, right? Being part of this movement doesn't come for free. It absolutely doesn't. That you have to make hard choices and often those hard choices cost time, cost labor, and cost money. Patagonia is part of something called 1% for the planet. In fact, we were a founding member of 1% for the planet some 20 years ago. That is a tax that we impose upon ourselves. It is 1% of our gross revenue that we give away to grassroots environmental groups around the world. We now support in the region of 1,100 groups internationally. Here in Europe, about 116. And here in the Netherlands and also in the UK, I'm very proud to say that we support Extinction Rebellion Action is what forms the basis of our environmental philosophy but increasingly just our philosophy as a business, both a commercial business and an activist business in how we want to show up in the world. On Wednesday of next week we're launching this, it's called Patagonia Action Works, and it's a digital platform that connects all of those groups that we support through 1% for the planet to the millions of customers that we have around the world. And it enables us, Patagonia, to kind of step back from that equation and say, let's amplify this movement, right? Let's use our customers in connection with these important groups and let's scale good. Let's scale solutions. Let's take action and do stuff. You can volunteer your skills. You can show up at an event. You can sign a petition. You can donate your money. And yeah, we're really excited for this one to get out the door. It's been a long time coming. It resonated with me from the moment I started work at this company this idea you know i like many of you i come from a marketing background and there's a lot of hot air in marketing and advertising there's a lot of talking there's a lot of not of translation into actually getting stuff done real stuff real stuff in the real world right and but this is what the groups that we support do and this is increasingly what citizens are doing right they're getting out and they're pushing against the system but the system's pushing back and it's saying You know, no, you can't go any further than this. And we as citizens are saying, yes, we can, we have to, and we must. But we know this is how we're going to mobilize and use this platform that we have, this business, to do something. Uh, I'm going to leave you with one quote. It's a longer one, I'll read it out. Only on the fringes of an ecosystem, those outer rings, does evolution and adaptation occur at a furious pace. The inner center of the system, where the entrenched, non-adapting species die off, doomed to failure by maintaining the status quo. Business goes through these same cycles and the question as people of business is we cast our mind into the future, the very new future defined by these incredibly rapid changing events around us. And what kind of future do we want to shape? Do we want to be part of the status quo that's created this mess? Or do we want to be part of something different and new? Thanks.